This episode is brought to you by charlottesgotalot.com. The Queen City is a food lover's paradise and hosts to hundreds of incredible events throughout the year, including the International Symposium on Bread. Plan your trip at charlottesgotalot.com. Hey, this is Hannah, HRN's program manager. It's HRN's 10th anniversary and now our summer fun drive. So show your support for independent, revolutionary, entertaining food radio by becoming a monthly recurring donor. HRN is powered by a passionate community of thoughtful eaters, and we need each and every one of you to show your support so that we can keep bringing you your favorite food podcasts. It takes a village, and every dollar donated, every listener tuning in is essential to our continued success. So set up a donation for $10 every month. You'll show us that you want to be a part of a bright future for HRN. And you'll get one of our brand new limited edition Pizza Pocket t-shirts. So snag your new favorite tea and show us some love. All for the price of about two fancy lattes each month. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate today. And thank you. Good evening, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting from Roberta's on Heritage Radio Network. So today is a really, really, really big day for all of us at Eating Matters, because it's the first time in over three years that our listeners get to hear from our show's creator, Kim Kessler. Since handing over the reins of Eating Matters, she has been serving as the Assistant Commissioner of the Bureau of Chronic Disease Prevention and Tobacco Control at the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene. She's joining the show today to help shine a light on the innovative and impactful work coming out of this agency and their effort to promote and protect the health of all New Yorkers. And before we actually get started, I should probably disclose two things. The first is that I had the immense honor of working for Kim many years ago. And prior to that, I also worked at the New York City Health Department. So you might think that I'm totally biased in my unbridled enthusiasm for and pride in what they're doing today. And that is because I am. (laughs) But as you will soon hear, their work truly speaks for itself. So without further ado, Kim, welcome to the show. Hi, Jen. <laughs> Is it kind of crazy where our seats are literally? Yeah, we're in opposite seats. <laughs> yeah. I'm, so I'm, in, I'm the captain you're now. You're the official <laughs> host. I couldn't even remember how to put this these earphones on. It's crazy. And did that music sound good to you? Yes. Want to share why? Yes, the music sounded good to me because it is my husband. Uh, it is written and produced and performed by my husband, Tim. So it's always fun for me to hear. It is. It's a good one. He doesn't have enough lyrics about food, I guess. So we had to, I think later he talks about meatballs in that song. <laughs> <laughs> Must have been the thinking at the time. Maybe. <laughs> I think it's perfect. Um, okay, so so not only are you show creator, but you also a music curator. You do it all. <laughs> Add the titles. You really do it all. So why don't you... Tell us, like, what have you, you know, what is your, what does it mean? What do you, you know, to be an assistant commissioner at the health department? What do you, um, what are you working on? 
Yeah, so it is a fun, exciting, and busy job. Uh, I, I, I oversee the work of the Bureau where we focus on the leading contributors to chronic disease, and that really means tobacco, diet, unhealthy diets, and physical inactivity. Mm -hmm. um, in addition, we have more cross-cutting efforts, particularly trying to leverage clinical environments for opportunities for public health. So we work to train providers on public health opportunities. We work to promote cancer screening um, and the cancers where it can make the biggest difference, the so colorectal cancer and breast cancer. Um, and in, across all of those efforts, we're doing a lot of communication, research, and evaluation, which is, which is core to our work. Wow. It's, yeah, it's exciting. I mean, it's really exciting. And also, I feel like you just said, we do everything. Just, <laughs> we don't do everything. It's, all, it's a little, yeah, we have to, we focus in within there where we think we can make the biggest difference with the resources that we have. Um, but it's been interesting for me because I had previously focused on food um, exclusively. And so taking on this broader portfolio and seeing lots of the ways that our approaches um, align across those different those different uh, content areas mm -hmm. is has been um, a really exciting way to learn and think in new ways about food as well as tobacco or active design um, and even beyond. How do you, how is the departments, you know, how are the priorities kind of determined, especially since, I mean, when I think about like diet related interventions, there's still a lot of, um, well, there's some debate within some topics within the kind of dietetic community in and of itself. So how, like, you know, who's making these decisions on what priorities and initiatives lead? You know, I think actually when um, when you think about healthy eating, it's it's really not that complicated and it's actually fairly straightforward. And we know that along with tobacco, it is really one of the leading contributors to premature mortality um, and, and the conditions that lead to premature mortality. Um, and I think that if you asked most people, probably all the people sitting out there eating right now, they'd be able to tell you, I should be eating fruits and vegetables, I should be cutting back on my, my salt and sugar, um, and they, they actually know what to do, but it's, it's knowledge doesn't equal behavior change because yeah. we're, we're in an environment that makes it really hard to act on that. And it's harder for some than for others. So especially at Roberta's pizza, <laughs> maybe not especially, <laughs> but, um, but at Roberta's pizza among many other uh, places you could put yourself in New York city. Right. Um, so I think that in general, in terms of our, our priorities, you know, when we are focused on helping people to eat more fruits and vegetables, eat more whole foods, cut back on sugary drinks, cut back on sodium. Um, and that is pretty consistent and pretty, um, pretty well established across the science and public health community that those are the areas to focus on. I think a lot of the um, confusion that comes up around nutrition is really driven by industry mm -hmm. where uh, they're stirring the pot and putting framing messaging that can make it more challenging for people to, um, to make, to really act on the things that would be more helpful for their diet. So in terms of priority setting, what we really have to think about are the kinds of interventions that we can do mm -hmm. um, and then what the, what the potential opportunities are to take action for shaping the food environment. Um, and those are things like price or the retail setting or taxes or education, um, among many others. And mm -hmm. then looking at the kinds of resources and tools that we have, which are policy, education, programmatic efforts, convening or partnering with stakeholders, uh, and then see 
where the matches are. So we, we may, for example, mm-hmm. we would be really interested in seeing a sugary drink tax because we would expect that to be, it's the most promising type of intervention for reducing sugary drink consumption and sugary drinks are bad. Uh, <laughs> they are bad. They're not great. I'm summarizing yeah. that yeah. Uh, so well. <laughs> um, but yes, they are. They, See, I'm good at this. <laughs> they are the leading source of sugar in, in Americans' diets. Um, they are all around us. They're often served in large portions. They're tied to diabetes and linked with heart disease and weight gain. So we've had a long-standing priority on trying to reduce consumption. Um, at the same time, that is not something that New York City can do on its own authority. That's something that where the authorities at the state level. So it's not something that we can act on. So it's really looking across what are the types of interventions that are promising mm-hmm. and where do we have uh, a, unique, a unique ability and the right resources to take action. So it sounds like that's a lot of kind of connecting the dots to find a you know specific policy or program that you can kind of there's a lot of legwork that has to go into that up front. So let's let's continue talking about sugar sweetened beverages. Um, there's a lot that the city has tried to do in the past, right? Over the past like ten years, um, what is happening? And I mean, at least when we were there, I would say there didn't have as much success in terms of attacks or portion control or, you know, <laughs> like a, the snap, proposed SNAP pilot to uh, not include uh, sugary beverages. So what is happening right now? Um, what do you guys, you know, ha- yeah. What are you guys yeah, doing on that? So, um, <laughs> so as you say, the city has had a longstanding, fo- or as we have both said, the city has had a longstanding focus on this. And there's been a whole set of efforts to tackle them. Um, and that has included things like the city food standards, which um, helped to make it, make ensure that cities weren't serving or providing sugary drinks in any of their programming or in their settings. Uh, yeah. And actually, before you go on, so I think, can, like, let can you just tell us how many meals and you know and how many people that affects? Because um, in a city of eight million people, in a city of eight million people. Uh, over 1 million of them are city school children, and all of those children are impacted by these city food standards. So they are the biggest group, um, Mm -hmm. but the city serves about 240 million meals and snacks per year through all of its programming. So DOE is the biggest piece, but there's our public hospitals, there's our correctional facilities, there's our homeless shelter, senior centers, after after, um, daycare programs. Corrections. And, and others. Yeah. yeah. And others and more. And so in all of those settings, we the, the city has established uh, nutrition standards with, with strong criteria so that we're um, ensuring that we're walking the walk mm-hmm. in the food that we're serving and working with city agencies to, especially for many of those programs that are serving more vulnerable New Yorkers or young and are young and our uh, senior communities. Um, it's just a huge impact, a huge opportunity. It's a huge opportunity, and when we make those kinds of changes, it can also send signals to the supply system. So if we have sodium thresholds that are lower, if we're requiring certain amounts of whole grains to be served, that can help move the supply chain to make uh, access to those those kinds of products more available in the food service yeah. sector. So that's an example of... of healthier standards. Healthier standards, yeah. um, including for, for vending machines and... Um, other outlets. Oh yeah, I know vending machines. You know vending machines. Yeah. You worked hard on that. <laughs> um, we also we also have had media campaigns for long-standing 
a longstanding um, focus yep. in terms of getting information out to people about sugary drinks, what they are, and how they can affect health. And They're, those have included, like, the, the I feel like those really resonated, the Subway ads, like the pouring on the fat campaign that were super gross. Pouring on the pounds, yep. yeah. Or pouring on the, pouring on the pounds. Um, and then just like showing the amount of sugar that is, you know, actually like in a, is it like a teaspoon or sugar cubes? Yeah, packets. I think um, there was media campaigns around packets. Uh, yeah, we'll often talk about teaspoons, like one 20 ounce sugary drink can contain 15 teaspoons of sugar and some are even higher. Oh. Uh, so just trying to bring some of that down to reality and help right. people understand and how it's linked with health. Um, there's also been, been where we regulate environments. So daycares and after-school programs aren't allowed to offer sugary drinks. Um, and we've also done a lot of nutrition education and outreach around this. So we work with community partners on sugary drink awareness. And together, along with many of the policy attempts, although they weren't always successful, as you have talked about. So, so things like... <laughs> You're like, thanks for pointing that out. <laughs> no, but things... I mean, it's important. So you, we, we've tried. We've tried to pursue different things, um, including bringing attention to the issue of taxes back in 2009, 2010, the portion cap attempt. Um, and while those didn't go into effect, I think they're really important for driving the conversation and helping people to see the connection between policy and uh, how that affects what people are eating. And overall of that time, we have seen, um, we have seen reducing rates in sugary drink consumption or self-reported sugary drink consumption in New York City, which is promising. And at the same time, we still have about a quarter of New Yorkers drinking one or more sugary drink per day. Wow, really? And some of the numbers are, are high for youth. For youth, it's about a third for, for kids in high school. Um, a third of them drinking a sugary drink per day. And what's even more concerning is that there's also really big gaps between groups. Uh, so we have white New Yorkers consuming less sugary drinks than communities of color. Mm -hmm. And we, we recognize that that's tied back to marketing presence and retail landscapes in different communities. And so there are a lot of factors to consider and to tackle when mm -hmm. we're trying to, to address this issue. Has the city done, what are the efforts um, that the city has made an attempt to, if any, regulate like what can be marketed where? So because of the First Amendment, there are real limitations. This little thing, you might have heard of it. It's called the first it's called free speech. Yeah. Um, and and you're, free, you're a lawyer. You yeah. know a lot about that. And free commercial speech. So there are limitations on uh, how marketing can be restricted. Um, and in our country, unlike some others, there are some some places across the world that are really tackling the issue of marketing. It's more challenging to do that in the U.S. But there are communities where, you know, you, for instance, I mean, I, I thought, like, you can't have, um, I don't know, like a Taco Bell ad in school or something like that. Or like a big banner, you know, like what, I mean, there have to be... There are, well, school, because schools are, um, a school can have a policy around that. Or in, in New York City, for example, our school vending machines can't be, can't promote a sugary drink product. So they can't be like a Pepsi machine. Correct. Yeah. And they aren't. Okay. Um, okay. So, so now that you guys have sugar taken care of <laughs> or is, <laughs> is in the works, um, what about sodium? 
The focus for us is thinking about the food supply and that's where the real opportunity is because for most people it's not it's really not what you're adding at the table and if you're cooking up a lot of vegetables and sprinkling some salt on top that's not what's driving the fact that 50% of Americans are or Americans are consuming 50% more sodium than they should. Okay. Um, so the daily recommended limit or the, the the threshold at which you really start putting increasing your risk of links to uh, high blood pressure is 2300 milligrams per day and that's the uh, national guideline and that's about a teaspoon of salt. New York City was a leader by creating and launching the National Salt Reduction Initiative, mm -hmm. where the city, along with a coalition of public health partners all across the country, developed voluntary sodium targets for industry. And this was targets that industry could then look and look at what they actually had in their own packaged foods and make um, efforts to either reformulate or change their products or introduce new products so that their products were at a lower sodium level. And this is the kind of thing that is invisible to the consumer. So it's making the healthy choice easier without people even having to think about it. Right. Uh, and then more recently, the city... I mean, and that was a really big deal, right? So you have like all of the major, m most of the major big food CPGs signing on to say in like XYZ product, we're going to lower the sodium by, and then they did it phase in over time. Yes. So there were two targets. There was a shorter and nearer term target and a longer term target. And the city did work to work with companies and invite them to commit to those targets publicly. And uh, at the same... They were like, we welcome you. We welcome you. <laughs> and, and, and a number of them did. And yeah, a number of yeah. them um, made real strides. And then we did an overall look, the uh, evaluation of that initiative. And there was a reduction in sodium in the food supply by 7% over the course of the NSRI initiative. Wow. And uh, we're also excited that since that time, the FDA has been working on sodium targets and are optimistic that those targets will be finalized. It's a sodium, what do you mean sodium targets? Sodium reduction targets for the food industry. So this, oh. these again would be voluntary targets, but uh -huh. this kind of guideline setting really, uh, really does help the set a level playing field among industry and inform what's a what's a way of shifting the overall food supply to something that's more in line with what we need for health. So this seems like it might be a really good example of how a local policy has helped drive or like encourage, you know, more federal action. Yeah, I think it's a great example of that. And um, I should say that the team that developed this was looking internationally. So it's a good example also of how we learn from other jurisdictions, whether they're local or international. This was something that the UK had done, and there, there wasn't ac action at the federal level at the time New York City took it on. So again, along with um, many, many partners, a coalition of partners from across the country, New York City was able to lead that effort and then ultimately, yes, help to shape federal policy or help to inform it. Yay, D-O-H-M-H. Yeah. <laughs> um, I have to ask, because I have gotten this question, there was a study that came out, and you can help help me with this, but was it 2018 that kind of um, basically questioned whether or not sodium was as damaging to our health as was previously thought. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I'm sure the department has a response. Um, there have been a number of studies um, that have, and I would say actually, there have been some studies, and there tends to be heavy media coverage of studies, lots of lots of studies with lots of confusing information. I think mm -hmm. generated sometimes by media coverage of them. But uh, salt, I think, has sometimes been portrayed as a more controversial topic than the science 
the science um, would actually bear out. So the science is clear that mm-hmm. sodium is can increase your high high rates of sodium consumption can increase blood pressure, and blood, high blood pressure is linked with health outcomes that we want to help people avoid, like heart disease and stroke. Um, and it's really not controversial. It's a it's a national guideline. There was just a, a major analysis done that reconfirmed the guideline of 2300 milligrams per day. Okay, so we have to take a really quick commercial break and hear a word from our sponsors. But when we get back, we'll have a little bit of time for just a couple more questions. So stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by charlottesgotalot.com. The Queen City is a food lover's paradise and host to hundreds of incredible events throughout the year, including the International Symposium on Bread at Johnson & Wales University. HRN went to this year's symposium to learn about the science, history, and art of bread making. Here's what visitors had to say about the symposium. I love the geeky science stuff. Great food. Love the Armenian pizza. How much I'm eating. and consuming the carbs. The most interesting thing is just the community. For me, it's the the, the science of starters. So much information. Very inspiring so far, because everybody has a different outlook. I'm not technically a breadhead, but I think I'm going to be one after being here. So whether you're a breadhead or just a curious mind, check out HRN on tour for coverage of Charlotte's International Symposium on Bread and an insider's look into Charlotte's food scene. Don't miss our interview with Peter Reinhardt and Kristen Moore to learn more about where to eat on your next trip to Charlotte, a city on the rise. Learn more at charlottesgotalot.com. And we're back, um, where today I am joined in the studio by Eating Matters founder, Kim Kessler, um, current assistant commissioner of the Bureau of Chronic Disease Prevention and Tobacco Control, who is also the smartest, most amazing um, person I know, public health official <laughs> and food policy warrior. So, so lucky to have her in my life. And so anyways, we're talking with Kim today. <laughs> Thank you, Jenna. Oh, you're welcome. Um, okay, so... Definitely can't live up to that, but... <laughs> <laughs> I think you can. Um, what are some new things that you you guys are working on right now that you're particularly excited about? Well, I spoke uh, for I spoke just now about the National Salt Reduction Initiative and the department's press work on that um, because you were so interested in hearing I am. about sodium. I know you changed my mind. But Amazing. this, Good this job. gives me the opportunity <laughs> to highlight a new effort in that area. So the National Salt Reduction Initiative is now the National Salt and Sugar Reduction Initiative. <gasps> And it's a really what? exciting effort. Yeah. We um, we worked with the national partnership that we have that that is convened by us and made the determination to set targets the, for the existing yeah existing okay. coalition mm-hmm. yes um, and made the determination to go ahead and set voluntary targets for sugar in the packaged food supply. Um, it's very present in our food supply, perhaps more than people would realize. Added sugar is actually in about seven out of 10 packaged food products in the U.S. Wow. And added sugar is something like sodium that that, uh, Americans consume too much of. We consume about 35% more than the recommended amount. And uh, like sodium, it is is linked with bad health outcomes. So this is an effort to, again, look to the food supply and try and make a difference before products reach consumers 
And what we are doing now, we're in the early phases of this. We are setting, we've released an initial set of targets. Um, our, our targets are to reach for reducing, asking companies to reduce sugar by 20% in wow. packaged food products and yeah. then by 40% in sugary drink products. And uh, those draft targets were shared publicly in October. And then we asked for comments from the industry to help inform this target setting process. And we are currently reviewing those comments. And then we will be sharing an updated set of targets for more further industry engagement. So, okay. So this is just added sugar or like overall sugar? So because uh, we don't currently have added sugar on our food labels, so we will soon, which is really exciting. I know, I'm super excited. This initiative um, is targeted at, it, this initiative is based on all sugar in terms of uh, the analysis that we did, but it is designed to really reach added sugar because the types of products, the types of categories that we're setting targets for, there's very little naturally occurring sugar. For example? Uh, for example, um, things like cereals or, or cakes or baked goods um there's also yogurts sugary drinks other a whole host of other categories um there are some naturally occurring sugars in dairy-based products mm -hmm. uh and there's also naturally occurring sugars in anything that contains fruit but other right. than that most of the sugars that are in, or other than that really all of the sugars that are in these products are going to be added sugar so the way that the targets are designed we think will really be reaching added sugar and so you know you said like reducing the sugar and sugary drinks and i'm like well doesn't that like defeat the purpose of having a sugary drink but i mean i i think it's maybe important to point out and correct me if i'm wrong but it's not just soda like you know i mean it is things probably like snapple products yes i hope they're not a snap a sponsor <laughs> <laughs> no it is really it is really important to point that out thank you for pointing yeah. that out because we think uh yes often people may be picturing soda um but there's a whole host of sugary drinks there's things like juice drinks coffee drinks sweet yeah. teas sports drinks. drinks um and all of these can be high in added sugar and there is a wide range of sugar in different sugary drink products uh, of course, we would we would want people to avoid all sugary drink products. They have little to no nutritional value. They're like, just drink water. Yeah, just do it. Yes, just drink water. Um, <laughs> that is the best thing that you can do. Put a little lemon in it. It's delicious. Uh, so at the same time, we we in consistent with the type of approach that the National Salt and Sugar Reduction takes, it's really about shifting the food supply. So again, this isn't reliant on consumer behavior change or consumers making choices. It's so that what's around you when you go into the store is actually that much more healthy and you have some more real choices to choose something better for your own health. So creating a, a, a healthier environment. Yeah, and a healthier food supply. Just to make, and it makes it easier. So yeah. you don't have to think, to, it's like you make the healthy choice, the e easy choice. choice. How did I get through this interview that saying that? <laughs> yeah. That was our motto. Very important. Um, I guess it was the city's motto. It was not just our personal motto. But yeah, <laughs> I think it's a motto in public health in general, but it's it really captures the idea. I just attributed it to only New York City. <laughs> We did it. <laughs> um, okay, so that's really exciting. In you know, cannot wait to follow the progress on that. Um, anything else? I mean, that I mean, not anything else. You guys are doing so much work. But is there anything else that you, you know? We do. We have some other really exciting initiatives. We actually uh, just last week announced an expansion of a, a prescription program that links pharmacies to farmers markets. So huh. uh, people who go into a pharmacy and um, have hypertension 
can be eligible in these participating pharmacies to get a prescription for health bucks. Uh, then they can take their prescription to the farmer's market and get $30 in health bucks. And health bucks are coupons that are redeemable at farmer's markets for fruits and vegetables. So this is a way for people who are um, lower income and being treated for hypertension to have their pharmacists engage them in a conversation about lifestyle modification. Mm -hmm. We think pharmacists can play a really important role and are an asset in the community for promoting health and one that maybe has been undertapped in the past for these kind of initiatives. Um, and they can engage them, they can share the prescription, and then that person can go to the farmer's market and uh, get those vouchers to help them buy $30 more of fruits and vegetables. That's amazing. And every time they go back to get their prescription refilled, they can get an, um, another $30 Is this set of coupons. just for SNAP recipients, or how do you determine who's in the program? The um, screen is based on... Medicaid participation, but it is funded by USDA and it is first, it is uh, targeted at SNAP participants. So yes. I think that's brilliant. Sidebar, I love my, there's two pharmacists and they've been my pharmacist for like over a decade and they're um, like, I love it. It's one of those kind of, you know, I have like a connection to like a neighborhood, you know, they're not a business owner, but like I, I see them every yeah exactly all the time. <laughs> right, I think that's a common experience, and um, many pharmacies, especially in low-income communities, are independent pharmacies, and they really, you know, can be a place where people have a real connection. It's somebody yeah. who is able to provide that bit of guidance that can make a difference and support people in making healthier changes right. uh, along with the medication that, yeah. they're, that they're accessing. So we're excited about that. Uh, it was a program expansion. It started as a pilot, and it's now available in 16 pharmacies across New York City, and there's a little over 800 New Yorkers who've been participating in oh. the program. Um, is, that a cha- is that like a CVS, or is that a... It's actually just at independent pharmacies oh, awesome. at this time. Oh, that's great. Okay. So we're excited about that. Yeah. And then another um, big thing that's happened in New York City is that the uh, mayor announced an effort actually around procurement, so around our city food purchases. Uh, He announced that the the city is committed to reducing our beef purchases by 50% and then phasing out processed meat. And we will be implementing the the processed meat changes by updating the New York City food standards, which I talked about earlier. Yeah. Wow. By 50%? Yep. And this is an exciting initiative because it's really at the point of intersection between it's, it's harnessing um, the importance of both health and the climate. And yeah. so he announced this as part of the, his Green New Deal efforts. And um, and it's really recognizing that there is this intrinsic connection between our food system and our sustainability concerns and, and climate over the long term. There has been movement all across the country towards featuring more plant-based products, more plant-based proteins, helping people to understand how to incorporate more eat more plants in their yeah. diet in general. We know people uh, usually are eating enough protein in, yeah. in the United States, but it's often just not from the healthiest sources of protein. And so this is really a way that we can start to shift that. And processed meat in particular, there is often high in sodium, high in fat. Uh, it's linked with colorectal cancer. So it really is important that we prioritize this. And the city's made a, a big commitment in this way. Wow. Um, okay. So what, that's really, I can't wait to see, to see that. Um, 
and I'm I'm very impressed and excited about this. Um, all right, so I, we have to wrap up in um, <laughs> quick in a in a few minutes, but um, I just want to ask a couple more questions. Um, if you had to pick one, this is going to be the, the 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 section of the interview where I'm like, just pick one of these things it's like these kinds of questions are impossible to answer so let me ask you a bunch of them <laughs> what um what is the most impactful inter- you know pick one intervention that has come out of the city's health department in the past 10 years at you know chronic disease prevention i would say specifically that you can say like this has been the biggest success in new york city since the time that there really became a big focus on what kind of levers could this city have, there's been a whole host of initiatives that have helped to influence other localities and helped to influence ultimately the federal government. So things like menu labeling, uh, things like sodium reduction that we already talked about, and possibly one of the most impactful examples may be the trans fat restriction. Yes. The city's trans fat restriction, which... Uh, was enacted, I think, in 2006, so it's actually even a longer time frame. Mm-hmm. Um, what, the, our Board of Health adopted a restriction um, to phase out trans fats in New York City restaurants, and so there have been some recent evaluations with more data even showing the, the impactfulness of that effort, and that's a really strong example of the kind of change that can happen at the local level. And then ultimately in 2015, the FDA added trans fats to its, uh, or removed trans fats from its grass list so that they're now much, much less available in our food supply and ultimately will be largely eliminated from our food supply. Um, Okay. All right. So just like shining a light on the, you know, on the importance of food and how you can make a big difference in you know, public health and the environment, all these things. Um, and then really leading on an example, like leading on an issue that led that caused trans fats to be removed from earth. Yeah. I think it's that opportunity to scale that, that can make this work so impactful. So when, when localities or any jurisdiction takes on an issue that's new, um, and learns from their work, shows feasibility, identifies challenges, and then that initiative can spread to, to other localities or other jurisdictions. That is really the promise for changing these factors in our food system overall. Last question, where can our listeners go to kind of f- to follow your work and um, continue to... Uh, everyone can follow our work through our social media channels at NYC Healthy, uh, Instagram, Twitter... And um, we're in the news from time to time. Our website, of course, as well. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's really fun to be here. And congratulations on all the great work you've done with the podcast well, since uh, you. you took it over. This is our 141st episode. That's incredible. I know. That's I, incredible. Congratulations I was like, to you. I was going to, well, and you. You, know, you started it. <laughs> and you, you did a lot. You've done the, by far the vast majority of those of that 140 episodes. So. I wanted to wait to 150, but I was like, I can't wait that long. <laughs> I, I need to have her on now. now. Um, well, thank you so much for, for joining. Um, Okay, so we're going to leave it there, but um, before we go, I want to give a big thanks to our sponsors for their generous support, as well as to Devani Latino, Eating Matters intern extraordinaire, and our engineer. Um, 
show music is by Tim Archer. All episodes of Eating Matters are available on the Heritage Radio Network website or as a podcast wherever they are found. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe and leave me a comment. Let me know what you think. I'm Jenna Liu, and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.